Now, uh, if you are new, it is a great time for you to be joining us because today we are launching a brand new four-week series entitled A Meaningful Life. So it was the great existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre who once quipped, everything has been figured out except how to live. Everything has been figured out except how to live. Now, he died in 1980, and since that time, there is a whole lot more stuff that's been figured out, and yet I'm not sure we're any closer as a culture, as a society, to knowing how to live. You know, we are arguably the most uh, scientifically, economically, technologically, uh, medically advanced society in the history of the world. But I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not sure we're any closer to actually knowing how to live the good life, how to live a life well. I mean, we 21st century Americans are also arguably some of the most anxious and depressed and addicted human beings to ever walk the face of the planet. Now, the premise of our series is that Jesus of Nazareth knows all about life. He knows how to live. You know, he's not just the savior of the world. Jesus is also the smartest person to ever walk the face of the planet. And he has come in order to help us know how to live the good life. In fact, Jesus said, I have come so that you might have life and that you might experience it to the full. In other words, Jesus didn't simply come to give us life after death. Jesus came in order to teach us how to live life before we die. In fact, one of uh, the the most prominent descriptive words to uh, name what a Christian is, it's the word disciple. And the word disciple in Greek is methetes, and it, it essentially means learner or apprentice. And what is it that we are learning or apprenticing ourselves to Jesus in order to like learn, right? It is to learn how to live. Jesus came in order to teach us how to live well. And so throughout this series, we are going to be discovering together what's at the heart of a life that is well lived. And you could put it in, in a paradoxical form, or Jesus at least put it in this way. He said, look, he said, the quickest way to, to lose your life is to, to try to find it. But the quickest way to actually discover and find your life is to lose it. In other words, the path into a life full of joy and fullness and meaning and purpose, the, the, the way we get there is, is we, we can't buy our way there or consume our way there or narcoticize our way there or entertain ourselves into the good life. The path into the good life is a path that is characterized, it's marked according to Jesus by selfless and sacrificial love. The way you find your life is to give your life away. And, you know, I I think a lot of us know that by our own experience, don't you? I mean, where is it that you have found the most joy, the most fullness, the, 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 the greatest kind of moments in life? It's not when you have been absorbed in yourself and in buying more stuff for yourself. Well, that might have been happy just that one day, the day you drove home with the new car, the new shoes or whatever. But it quickly fades away, right? It doesn't actually lead into fullness of life. You know, we heard in the, in the video that we watched um, a little bit of Athalie's story. 
And Athalie actually took her first trip to Kenya when she was just 19 years old. She was a brand new Christian, and uh, she told me I could share this with you. But at that time in her life, uh, she was struggling with addiction and with self-harm issues and with self-image issues. And it was in that space that she met Jesus, and Jesus forgave her. Jesus revealed his love to her. But Jesus also gave her a purpose to live for that was bigger than all of the stuff that was sort of absorbing and consuming and and really wrecking her life. He gave her a role in his own kingdom purposes. And in giving herself away for something bigger than herself, she actually regained her life again. She, She discovered something more of who she was and what it was to really live. And, you know, beginning this week and in the next, week, the next few weeks, we're going to be talking together about what it might look like for you and for I to discover what the role is that God has for us in his large kingdom purposes in this world. You know, God is at work in this world. The world is not the tale of an idiot. It's not full of sound and fury signifying nothing. We live in a universe that was brought into being by the creative and the redemptive power of God. And God is at work in this world. He has defeated sin and death and darkness in death and resurrection of Jesus. He has poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. God is at work in this world we inhabit. And he invites us to participate with him in that work. And Jesus again said, look, if you want to know genuine life, then learn to sacrifice and to give yourself away for this grand purpose, this big mission that I have in my world, my kingdom that I am establishing, that I am growing in this world. But of course, there's obstacles really for us really to engage in the great kingdom mission of God, isn't there? I mean, for one, self-sacrifice is just hard. And I don't know about you, but I prefer my own comfort. Anybody else in the house prefer your own comfort to sacrificing yourself? I mean, I like my creature comforts. I like a nice cup of coffee in the morning. I like a good, like, craft coffee, expensive coffee. And I, I like, I like well-prepared meals. I like nice vacations in comfortable places. I like my creaturely comforts. And, 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 and I'm like you, I'm selfish, And, um, and so I would prefer not to give self away and sacrifice self. I would prefer to have people be, you know, praising self and, and giving more comforts to self. And so there's obstacles that stand in the way of giving our life away. And one of the biggest is that sometimes we don't know what role we're supposed to play in this whole kingdom mission of God. We'd like to. We see others, but we're like, what do I have to offer? And so beginning today over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking together about how you can discover what it is that God might have you to to give, the role he wants you to play, and how in doing so you can discover true and genuine life. Well, to begin our our series, we're going to begin uh, by looking together at a man named Nehemiah. And and this was a guy who, he, he, he knew creaturely comforts. He lived in a palace with the king. And yet, he was propelled out of the comforts of the palace and into sacrificial service for a cause bigger than himself. And what we're going to look at today is the dynamic, the very, the very thing that really propelled him and will propel us into mission. And it, it, it's a dynamic that's not only found in Nehemiah, it was, it was seen something in, in the story Athalie told. 
And I think it's a dynamic that, that you see in almost everybody who is propelled to sacrifice themselves in big ways to give themselves away for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom and for the sake of the world. And we're going to see something the dynamic by looking together at Nehemiah chapter 1. And so if you, if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. And I want to make three observations about Nehemiah, three things about him that, that really propelled him into this, this life of sacrificial service of something bigger than himself. Now, a little context might be helpful. Uh, so Nehemiah was one of the exiles so the, the history of Israel in two seconds goes like this. I don't know, it's not gonna be two seconds. This is maybe two, this is maybe 120 seconds. Jonathan, time me. Let's just see how this goes. So God created a new people through his servant Abraham, this nation called Israel. They were to be his chosen people. And through this nation, God was going to bring his blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And so he heaped this nation down with his blessings, with land, with uh, his law, with his temple, with his kings. But as the story of Israel goes on, they fell into sin and idolatry and they turned their back on God and they were cast out of the land that, they had, that God had given them. Their temple that he gave them was destroyed. Their kings were, were, were also taken off into exile. And, and as you get to the time of Nehemiah, Israel has been in exile for a very long time. But there was a Persian king named Cyrus who by the sovereign providence of God issued a decree that some of the Israelites who were off in exile could go back and they could start rebuilding God's temple and the city of God in the land of Israel. And so some exiles went back and they began uh, this plan of rebuilding the temple under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. Can we all say Zerubbabel? I don't know why people don't choose that for a kid these days. I feel like it's a good name, Zerubbabel. Um, but, uh, but they go back and they rebuild it. And uh, the temple is kind of lackluster. It doesn't retain the, the glory of Solomon's, uh, you know, temple, but it's there. But then the work on the city and on the temple just fades and a few decades go by. And that's where we pick up the story of Nehemiah. It's now a few decades after the decree to rebuild the city and the temple has been issued. Uh, Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. He's back still in uh, uh, the land of exile, the land of Babylon. And it's there that Nehemiah discovers that there is a massive problem that's happening to God's people. And look at what it says uh, in chapter one, verse one. And number one, the first thing that I want you to see in these verses is that Nehemiah owned the problem. Look at what it says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Shislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, for the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. So let's talk a, a minute. Who is Nehemiah? Well, the text says that he is the son of Hakaliah. Now, who is Hakaliah? 
I have no idea. We don't really know much about Nehemiah. The only thing that we know about Nehemiah is that he was incredibly short because he was Nehemiah. Come on, that was so, that was like preacher joke and dad joke wrapped up in the one as bad as it gets. I won't say it in the next service. No, I will proudly say it in the next service. But what we know is that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Now, what was the cupbearer to the king? Well, his job was to taste the king's food and drink prior to the king in case the food and drink had poison and then Nehemiah would die and not the king. And so this was a job for a risk taker who liked to eat. And it was dangerous, but it was pretty cush because, you know, he was in the palace. uh, He had proximity to the king. He got to eat at the king's tables. And as the story goes on, it's clear that Nehemiah is in cahoots. He's in close friendship and relationship. He's a confidant to the king. And then, uh, so he's he's in comfort and considerable power. But then his brother, Hanani, arrives from Jerusalem with some news. He tells him of this great problem. He says, he says, Nehemiah, he says that the, the, the exiles who survived, uh, the, the, or who escaped, who survived the exiles, he said this, he says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame because the walls are broken down. So what is the problem? It, it's not just a construction problem. It's not just that the wall around the city needs some repair. This is a safety issue. Because Israel then, like now, was surrounded by enemies who constantly sought her destruction. And so the walls in the ancient world were a form of defense. It was how you protected yourself from the surrounding enemies. And so at this stage, the nation, this, this nation that's kind of re, rebirthing itself right in the heart of the land, surrounded by enemies, they are vulnerable and under threat. But it's not just a safety issue. This is a a, a theological issue. It says that they are in trouble, but also great shame. Why? Well, because Jerusalem was the city of God. And so if Jerusalem is not doing well, then it's an indication to all the surrounding nations that Israel's God is impotent to do anything about the nation. And this created shame. And so they're in shame and trouble because of these walls. And and immediately Nehemiah hears this problem and he owns it for himself. And what's crazy is that Nehemiah is not close to Jerusalem at this time. Notice uh, on the map, uh, Nehemiah is over here in Susa. It's 1,500 miles from Jerusalem. And according to MapQuest, it's 20 hours by car. But of course, he didn't have a car. He would have to go on camel or on donkey. And so he has distance from the problem. But nevertheless, he owns the problem himself. And this is often where what propels God's people into God's work. It is when we own a problem for ourselves. Now, of course, Nehemiah had problems of his own. He was the cupbearer of the king. I mean, every day he he lived with that low-grade anxiety. Is that next bite of lamb going to be my last? You know, if I take the next sip, well, I I live again after that. You know, he had problems of his own. He could have said, look, I've, my, my, Life here, you know, yeah, I've got some comforts, but I've got my own issues. That's their problem back in Jerusalem. But he owned the problem. Nehemiah gets involved in the work because he owns the problem for himself. And listen, 
often we fail to get involved in God's work because the only problems we own are our own problems. The only problems that concern us are the problems that concern us. But God's people get to work when they see beyond their own problems, when we see ourselves as part of something bigger than ourselves. Dr. King put it like this. He said, an individual has not started living until he or she can rise above the narrow confines of one's individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. It is when we rise above our own little problems and we recognize that we are a part of a world that God has made, that God is at work in, and he has work for us to do in this world that is broken and fallen. So an individual starts living when we get involved in something bigger than ourselves. You know, one of my favorite stories, I think, that illustrates this is of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Years ago, I read his biography, and it's fascinating. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, grew up in Germany at the rise of the Third Reich, and there was one point in his life where he was offered a cush job uh, back in New York City. And so he actually came to New York to Union Seminary, and he was going to take a professorship. Uh, some friends of his had arranged for it, trying to protect him from what was happening in Nazi Germany at the time. And at, at some point in, in his first initial several months in New York, he said, I, I cannot stay here any longer. He said, how can I live in New York in this cush comfortable existence when my brothers and sisters are suffering under the Third Reich. And he went back to Germany. He, he led a resistance movement, an underground seminary, and it eventually cost him his life. But he got involved in the work of God when all of a sudden he concerned himself with problems that didn't just concern him. It concerned others. And that's true for him and it's true for us. Now, of course, this is challenging, I think, in our current cultural moment. Because we are almost being trained to consistently and incessantly be exposed to problems through social media, through the news, uh, through what we're watching, constant exposure to problems all over the world that we are never expected to do anything about. One writer uh, in his book, the, the Wisdom Period, Brett McCracken put it like this. He said, on any given day, we are left inflamed by whatever grievances the internet has exposed to us, yet we feel powerless to do much about it. Our feed constantly informs us of grievances and trivialities that we didn't go looking for but get sucked into, far-off events that we can do nothing about, a political protest in Venezuela, a volcanic eruption in New Zealand, a snake found in a toilet in Florida, and so on. We can easily spend hours attending to headlines of things that will never affect us, debates about stuff we know little about, and problems we cannot solve. Meanwhile, as we are consumed with faraway dramas of our social media spaces, we neglect the tangible realities in front of our eyes. And friends, we are being inundated with this stuff, and we are being enculturated, we are being habituated again and again to see massive, worldwide, heartbreaking, heart-wrenching problems that we absolutely do nothing about. And we're so busy, and we're so entertained, and we're so clicking on the next thing that we just never get outside of ourselves and this world. And it, we will never get involved in God's work. We will never 
We, we will never be propelled in the mission until we own the problem ourselves. But he was not only, he not only owned the problem, secondly, he was broken by the problem. Notice back in the text what it says. He says this, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He not only sees the problem of these broken down walls, he is absolutely wrecked by this problem. He is broken by it. He's weeping and he's mourning and the walls are troubling him and he can't stand it. It's just bothering him. God's people are in trouble and they're they're exposed to shame and he's like, something has to be done and he's, he's weeping and he's crying and it's not just this momentary emotional experience, we discover that it goes on for months. And look what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was performed, the, the month of Nisan, it's four months following the original month where he hears this news. And look at what it says. He's still broken. He's still a mess. He said, I took up wine and gave it to the king Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And friends, this is the second thing that will propel us into God's mission. Not only when we see the problem, but we are actually wrecked by it. Our heart is broken by the problem. You know, oftentimes you'll see people, you know, they're adopting kids from the foster care system. And, and, and they're fighting against uh, racial injustice or they're, they're seeking to protect the life of the unborn or, or they're, they're, they're traveling to, to reach unreached people groups or maybe they're starting a new business in an entrepreneurial way to provide jobs for at-risk youth or they're engaged in some work with children or with youth. And very often, if you will follow the trail back to where it originated, it originated here. Not just when you see a problem or own the problem, but you're actually broken by the problem. And you're wrecked by it. You just think, I, I, I can't stand what's happening here. And, I, you know, I'm 46 years old now, and I grew up with, uh, I remember watching this, this show on TV called Popeye, The Sailor Man. It was a little cartoon. And uh, there was always this, this moment in the show where, you know, Popeye's uh, girlfriend, Olive Oil, would get in some kind of trouble. And, and Popeye would, would all of a sudden, he'd start to get heated up inside. And, and he would come to this point where he'd say, it's all I can stands. And I can't stands it no more, you know? And, you know, it's when we, when, it's when we reach that Popeye moment, where we just look at an issue and a problem in our world and and we don't know why. I mean, there's so many problems, but there's something that just sticks with you and it gets inside of you and it just bothers you. And you think something has to be done. Why isn't something being done about this? And your your heart is broken and you're wrecked by it. And, and, And it's then that you're propelled out into mission. It's what one leader I was listening to this week called a holy discontent where you're not content with, with, with something that you, you just say, this can't be so. And maybe even you say, God, why do you continue to allow this to happen in the world? And he might say to you, that's why I made you, so that you can become a part of the solution. 
You know, I grew up in the Calvary Chapel movement, and it's a remarkable movement, and it began back in the 60s or the 70s. And um, uh, during this season, you know, in, in the early genesis of the movement, there were hundreds and thousands of hippies coming to Christ in the late 60s, early 70s. And, and one of the, the, the primary leaders that kind of like was at the very genesis of this movement was a man named Chuck Smith. And it, it's fascinating when you, when you track back where that movement began, it actually didn't begin with Chuck. It began with his wife, Kay. And Kay was just heartbroken by the hippies that she would see around her. And, and, and she said that at first, Chuck, uh, you know, he was a clean-cut, clean-shaven, smartly-dressed, balding white male, you know? And he was repulsed by these hippies. But his wife, Kay, was burdened, and again and again, he recounted how she would tearfully challenge him. She would say, look, they just need the Lord, to which he'd respond, no, they're dirty hippies, they need a bath. And Kay later explained, I'd see them roaming the streets or wherever they were, and I'd start crying. And I started praying and asking God, why, what, what's, what's wrong? And Kay discerned God telling her, in response, they were empty and they needed God's love. And that's, where, that's what propelled them in to mission is because they were broken by a problem. What problem breaks your heart? What bothers you? What can't you stand? You know, a few years back, I went to Brazil with Compassion International and a church planning organization that was led by a man named Greg Nettle. And on this trip, Greg told me a little bit about his own journey of getting involved with Compassion International. He was a megachurch pastor. In his church, they had taken on 2,800 kids that, that were being supported for Compassion International. And he, um, he himself had adopted kids into his own family. And he, he was just this radical guy. He was just pouring himself out for, for the least of these. And he shared his story of where it began. And he said, I was given a book by the guy who founded Compassion International. And he said he told story after story of children who were growing up on the streets, who were dying, who were stuck in systemic poverty. And he said, he, he, he said, I'm not a guy who weeps, I'm not a guy. He says at some point, he says, in reading these stories, in opening up his heart to painful realities, he was wrecked. And he said he was just weeping. And it moved him in to mission. It moved him out into God's mission. What bothers you? What can't you stand? You know, you know, one of the things that I just can't stand, one of the things that bothers me, it, it's bothered me, are churches that exist right in the heart of communities, historic churches, churches that have beautiful and expansive properties right in the heart of communities in some of the most strategic places in the United States that are dying. And they're closing their doors. And it just bothers me, like, like all of those resources and all of that strategic location and all of the potential of being a force for good, a light for Jesus in that community, and it's falling apart. And it's that, that breaks me, and it moved me to come to Sierra Madre. You know, and I'm also bothered by it. It bothers me when churches, what bothers you? You know, it doesn't always have to be particularly and obviously spiritual. You know, uh, Ezra... He, he taught God's word. Nehemiah, he built a wall. You know, he was a construction worker. He was a project manager. 
You know, and, and for you, yeah, it, it, may be, it may be kids who are stuck and aging out of the foster care system. It may be the, the tens of thousands of men and women and children who are dying on the streets of Los Angeles and who, 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 are, who, are, who live without a home. It, it may be any number of issues. It may be just children in our church that you want to see meet Jesus. What is it that you can't stand when, when it's not being addressed? And if you will attend to that, it might be an indicator of what God wants you to step up and get involved in. Now be careful, because not everything that bothers you are good things. Sometimes Jesus uh, was a bother to religious people around him. Sometimes religious people are bothered by the wrong things. The religious leaders were bothered that, that Jesus and his disciples ate without washing their hands or that plucked grain on the Sabbath. That bothered them. It got them up in arms and that wasn't God's cause. So you got to be careful. And you know, not everything that bothers you is the same thing that bothers everyone else. We're not all bothered by the same thing. And that's the way God intends it to be because we are many people, but we're one body. And we have different roles to play. And so for some of us, our cause, our thing, it's going to be kids in the foster care system. It's going to be working in children's ministry. It's going to be spending your vacation time to go on a youth camp like we had um, young adult leaders do this last week. Uh, your cause may have to do with the very employment that you're given. You've got a heart that opens up for patients and it breaks your heart how patients are not cared well in the hospital. And you're a nurse and you're giving yourself to them, but you are doing it in Jesus' name. And so what is your thing? What's the thing that bothers you? Zero in on something specific. For Nehemiah, it was the walls that weren't being built. For Ezra, it was the word that was not being taught. What is it for you? So number one, he owned the problem. Number two, he was broken by the problem. But thirdly and finally, he was convinced of the solution. You know, what propelled him out, you know, he, he, after all, he was just Nehemiah, you know? He was just the son of Hakaliah. In the biblical history, he was a nobody. And yet he, he moved out. What was it that gave him the confidence to move out? And it was that he was convinced of the solution. And he was convinced that the real solution to the most pressing problems that this world faces was not Nehemiah, and it's not you, and it's not me. He was convinced that the solution was this. He was convinced that there was a God in heaven that had a plan for this world and that there is a God in heaven who is steadfast in his love and immeasurable in his power and that this God had a plan to redeem the world. Broken walls are nothing for this God. And the, so the solution is found only in the redemptive power and the love of our creator God. And so notice what it says in verse four. The very first thing Nehemiah does, the, the very first thing right when he hears about this problem is he turns to this God. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept, mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And what did he pray? He said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that's being prayed before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins 
we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. He knew he was a sinner, but he also knew that God uses sinners. The only people God uses in his plan are sinners. You think, I failed, I've blown it. Well, sign up for God's work because that's the only people God uses in his plan of redemption are people who, who have blown it. Because God's work doesn't depend upon people. God's work ultimately depends upon the love and power of God that is active in this world, in people's hearts and lives. You know, the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, it's not a storybook of heroes. It is a story about one hero. It is a story about the true and the better Nehemiah, the one who didn't just leave the palace in Susa to go enter into the rubble, but the true and living God who in Jesus Christ left the palace and the glory of heaven to enter into the rubble of humanity, to enter into our broken lives and our broken spaces and all of the brokenness of this world so that by giving his own life away in sacrifice and service, he ultimately might win us back to himself. And he comes to us and he says, come to me and be forgiven and be renewed and then be active in giving your own self away for the sake of others, for my purpose, for those things that break my heart, that break your heart, attend to those things and move out in mission with God. And there you will begin to find genuine and true life. Father, we come to you now and we praise you and we thank you that you have not left us alone in this world that you yourself have made. And even after we had turned our back on you, God, you did not leave us in our sin and darkness. You did not leave us in the rubble. You did not leave us to our broken lives and broken selves, God, but you came after us so that in your own body being broken, you might make us whole again. God, renew our hearts with your love even as we share together in this practice. Unite us together as a family in your love and propel us out together on mission. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.